Welcome to Feeding the Family with Dr. Kristen, where we help you navigate the challenges of feeding your family and learn about the role food plays in our health and relationships. Feeding and food relationships can be stressful, confusing, and even destructive. I'm Kristen Saxena, a pediatrician and mother of four who's been researching and sharing what I've learned about feeding for over 10 years. In this podcast, I'll share my experience and expertise to help our kids and ourselves with everyday survival tips for real parents. This podcast is about progress, not perfection. So let's get started. And welcome back to Feeding the Family with Dr. Kristen. I'm Kristen Saxena, a pediatrician, mom of four, and self-proclaimed feeding nerd. In this podcast, we will discuss the challenges that come from navigating feeding a family and talk about the role that food plays in our lives, our health, and our relationships. Today, I want to remind you for sure that we love to hear from you. So make sure that uh, you remember that we have the part of our podcast called Ask Me Anything, where you can submit questions, any topics that you guys want to talk about. You can submit that to our email, which is drkristinpodcast at gmail.com. That's D-R-K-R-I-S-T-I-N podcast at gmail or through our Facebook or Instagram accounts. There are certain principles in feeding that I think are universally important. Things like having structure to your feeding in terms of regular meals and snacks, not rigid, but sort of a normal structure that you adhere to. Uh, Something called the division of responsibility in feeding, especially with children, that's a matter of having The parents decide what, when, and where we're gonna eat, and the kids deciding how much they're gonna eat of what you're offering. I think things like preparing and planning are pretty universally important. And I think things like family meals, eating together, and the experience of sharing food. Those things, I think, are universally beneficial, and whatever we can do to sort of improve our lives in those areas will help us all out. I also think that we each carry with us food values. So there's things about us, things about our upbringing, about our lives that make certain parts of the feeding experience and the eating experience especially important. So that might be things like being healthy. So if you if you have a specific diet or you are very interested in not eating processed foods, if you're interested in food as fuel, if you're an athlete and worried about making sure that you're taking enough carbs or protein, depending on what kind of athletic activity that you take care of. Uh, Also, I think there's cultural reasons, there's keeping culture alive, there's religious reasons that you might choose to have a certain diet. And I think that there's also things like being eco-friendly. And so if that's something that's important to you, I think for a lot of us, that can also play out in the way we feed ourselves, the way we shop, we're consumers, and the way we feed our families. And that brings us to our topic today. My guest today is Katie Derwachter. She is a pediatrician. She is a mom of three boys, 11-year-old twins and an eight-year-old. And she is probably the eco-friendliest friend I have. So she uh, she has an Instagram account. It's Eco Mama Duck, and it's super fun to follow. She is an advocate for kids and an advocate for our climate. She is a member of a group through the American Academy of Pediatrics, which is climate advocates, correct? And that's specifically looking at the way that our climate is affecting our children's health. So. 
I'm sure you can tell us much more about that, but thanks for being here, Katie. Thanks so much. I'm so excited to be here with you. Absolutely. So also a little bit of background. I have known Katie for, I was thinking about it today. I think it's almost 14 years. 2006. Yeesh. It's been a long oh. time. Yeah. So I met Katie because Katie was in my class of residency. So pediatric residency. We did that together in Minnesota. We both had babies in residency. So we were in this kind of like resident moms club. <laughs> and so I got to know her then and always thought she was a super cool person to hang out with and had the opportunity to also reconnect with her because she started to work at Milan Laser where I was working and I was able to recruit her to come help us with our medical division at Milan. So I was able to reconnect and have been super excited to just get to get to know you again and get to have you in my life. And my favorite was when I came for training and I got to stay with your family and experience sexing a mealtime, oh, which no. is amazing. <laughs> yes. Also, a little known fact about Katie, she's very good at braiding hair. I love so. to braid hair. And my three boys do not offer me that skill. So I loved braiding Leah's hair. <laughs> <laughs> so that was pretty great. Um, but I did want to ask you, so being eco-friendly, caring for our environment, that is certainly something that is top of mind, super important in your life. Can you tell me a little bit about how you first became passionate about this? Can you even remember that? I, I don't know if I have a specific memory because ever since I was a child, I spent so much time in the outdoors and it just felt so comforting and grounding to me. And as an undergrad, I was an environmental studies major at the University of Oregon. And I finished that program not really knowing what I wanted to do. Um, I, I really then at that point got into international travel and I went into medicine for um, doing more international health. But then I got really sucked into the medical pathway, which you uh, can share your experience as well. And I ended up feeling really burned out in medicine and I lost my why. And after having three kids, I um, took a step back and I went into a non-clinical career doing insurance reviews. And at that time I realized I had more time and I really wanted to devote more time to delving into the climate crisis and solving the problems on a more global level. Mm -hmm. I had always really been that friend who had the water bottle and who packed things in packages that were non-single-use plastic, but I wanted to, to have more advocacy, and so that's how I got involved with the AAP Climate Advocate Program, and really framing the climate crisis in through the lens of a public health emergency. So having kids really is my why. It's the air quality that we have in Colorado right now where my kids' activities, I just got an email today that were canceled because we have really poor air quality from the wildfires, which are, of course, fueled by the climate crisis. So mm -hmm. that's really you know, where my passion lies and my, my reason for wanting to make environmentally friendly choices. Absolutely. Well, and I think the thing uh, I think that's sometimes hard maybe for people who aren't as well versed in some of the details and the research that are surrounding the issues that we're having with the climate crisis right now. I think that some of us are so caught up in current times that a lot of the 
at least maybe the previous communication about the climate has been very future forward in terms of we need to do this for our grandchildren, our great grandchildren. But I I know that it's also important right now, and I think you touched a little bit on that. And I think that the AAP is also talking about that we need to communicate that this is a an important issue for our children's health right now. Can you talk to us a little bit more about what it means right now? I think that's a really great point. So that's why we've tried to change the terminology to climate crisis. Crisis implies that something is urgent and we need to take action now. And also reframing to our health, because that's something that everyone has in common. The images of polar bears on the shrinking ice caps are certainly really pull on our emotions, but I think to make it relevant to people's lives, we really have to focus on the health impacts. So again, children with asthma or really marginalized communities who are living near refineries, those are really vulnerable populations that we really need to focus on right now because their health is being impacted every single day. Yeah. And that that is the t- didn't you you helped to write an article actually on that topic correct I did so there were a group of other pediatricians from around the country one was in San Diego two were in North Carolina one was in Puerto Rico and we all talked about different issues that impacted our communities particularly marginalized communities so in Puerto Rico obviously all of the storms that have been happening and the flooding and we have all seen those images on the news Hurricane Katrina was a huge example and the populations that are being affected by those are are really are happening in the now and are happening to our kids. And mm-hmm. so I really think it's our our duty to take action because we have such power with our choices as consumers and as parents. Absolutely. And that brings me to that question too. So I feel like you have so many things that come at you in terms of making the right decisions, not only as a parent, but also as a consumer. And there's so much conflicting information and there's so much information that it sometimes I think becomes overwhelming in the sense that, you know, I I shouldn't shop here. I shouldn't buy this. I shouldn't eat that. And something else is telling you, you should do that. And it just becomes very difficult. You know, you, you want to save money, but you don't want to shop at the big box store. You all of these things. So it's all this kind of conflicting information that you get. And I think sometimes it's easy to either give up or to just feel overwhelmed by the whole situation. So when you talk about choices that you're making and as a consumer and as a parent, I always think what, for me, I'm always like, what is the big impact item I can do? Maybe I can't do everything just right in every facet of my consumer and parenting lifestyle and my feeding lifestyle. But if there's one thing that you can say, you know, if you did make this one change, which is a doable change, that would actually have the biggest impact compared to some of the other things that you might do. So from your perspective, maybe let's just say as a consumer in terms of groceries or food, what do you think is is one of the most impactful yet doable things that a parent can do. 
So I think that you touched on really good points. It's so overwhelming. And I think to just start by giving yourself that grace that you're not going to be perfect. So you can't do it all. And to just make one change and to pick something that's meaningful and doable to you. For me, it was the water bottles many, many years ago. I just think you should never have to use a plastic water bottle. There may be times where you forget yours and that's okay. And and again, just forgive yourself. You're a human. But I think getting a water bottle, a reusable water bottle for every member of your family. I describe myself as the walking camel. Like I ha- always have a gigantic bag that friends jokingly refer to as my suitcase. <laughs> and I always have everyone's water bottles. And so I think that that just makes it really easy. You always have it with you. Just treat it as an extension of your body. You always have your phone with you, always have your water bottle and enough for your family or whoever you're with. I think that's just a really easy one because I also think it shifts your mentality. So every time you take a sip out of that water bottle, you're thinking, I'm making a conscious choice to do something better for the planet and reduce waste. And it's a plastic is made from fossil fuels. Some people don't even realize that. And so you're reducing your consumption um, of plastic, which is in turn helping the climate crisis. So I think that's the one really simple start that everyone can make. And then if you're already doing that, then you can choose a next step and something that you always try to do every time you're at the grocery store, maybe you buy in bulk. That's Mm -hmm. another really easy one. And have some reusable containers for packing lunches that you can buy that gigantic popcorn at Costco and then put in littler containers because really those single use packages are creating so much waste. Um, And if you just get the bigger container of it, then you're doing your little part. Mm -hmm. But really that water bottle, I always come back to as my first step. As your number one. Yeah. I like that and I think that that I think that that's gotten a lot more common I would say over the last 10 years even when I was at Milan and working with a lot of younger people I feel like people in their 20s I see more having the huge water bottle and I do think it's worth investing in a good water bottle so that you enjoy the experience you know one that keeps your drinks cold because again I think that that keeps you from wanting to just pull like a disposable water out of the fridge or anything like that. So Exactly. And I was just at the annual Milan Summit, which is the national meeting, and I was so happy in the swag bag that they had a glass reusable water bottle in there. <laughs> so I'm taking you that You call ahead and suggest that. <laughs> Shakar knows. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So what are, is that something that you discuss also with your children or how do you, They all have their water bottles and I'm sure that they're familiar with a lot of the things that are important to you and your values, but is that something that your kids know about and sort of share? They know why, why does my family always carry a big bag of water bottles around? They do, they sort of are, they're rolling their eyes at me at this point because they're becoming tweens and they want to get the Gatorade when we're wherever and I'm the worst mom ever when I don't let them, but I obviously do let them have single-use plastic Gatorades now and then. And, you know, like I said, no one is perfect, but Mm -hmm. they do understand the why. They understand, and they're learning in school, too, which I think is really amazing. And 
great how our public schools are including climate as part of the curriculum too. So I think just reinforcing it, they'll come back, they'll come home and tell me something they learned in school that I had already talked to them about. And they'll say, see, our teacher told us that you know this was an issue. And I say, I know, I, t- I told you that too. <laughs> and, and so I think that just having it reinforced is really, is really helpful to them. Absolutely. Yeah, lend some credibility to everything exactly. mom's been telling you all along. Exactly. <laughs> I love that. So can you tell us a little bit too more about your work with the AAP Climate Advocates? Is that what the group is called, correct? That is. We are a group of pediatricians from around the country. There is at least one representative from every state. So some states have more than one. I have a partner, Dr. Sheila Menke, who works in Commerce City as a general pediatrician. And we have monthly meetings where we all come together and have a speaker on a certain topic. And then we all share everything that we are doing. So it's meant to really inspire each other to work at a local and state level, because that's really where the change happens. And that group has been so inspiring to me because it really helps to expand on just what am I doing in my day-to-day role into how can I affect policy? And that's really what the AAP tries to do in general is affect policy to benefit children's health. And so with our climate advocate group, we have done all sorts of things like getting published in journals and bringing this issue to light. I have also done writing in journals which highlights the importance of these topics. I've also had the opportunity to testify at the state level on certain bills that take climate action. And so it's just a really great group to get ideas, to inspire each other. And I've been so happy to be able to be a part of that this past year. I love that. I think it's really exciting. It's exciting to get these pediatricians who are very committed to children's health and to get them sort of into, I would say for a lot of doctors that that political kind of advocacy role, they, they're advocates I think at heart, but we're not really trained in the world of politics and we're not really trained in the world of legal matters. And so I think I love that they can kind of be that bridge to take those people into that arena and allow them to help kids. It is. It's really great. And I think that you touch on our training too, which is an area where a lot of pediatricians in this group are focusing. They're developing a climate curriculum for residents, which I think is really incredible. And it's often a part of an advocacy rotation that residencies are starting to incorporate as well. So it teaches trainees that you have a really powerful voice as a pediatrician. You're a trusted member of your community and people listen to you in a different way than they listen to other experts in different Mm -hmm. fields. So like in the environmental movement, it's really viewed as a partisan issue a lot of times. It's really people are thought to be really left-leaning. And so refocusing this through a lens of a nonpartisan health issue is really powerful for the movement. So I'm really excited to see the education changes that are come coming down the, the line too. Absolutely, well, and I think that brings up a good point just about feeding in general, because I think thinking back to our training as pediatricians, I think it's very, clinical in the sense that you kind of learn these are the calorie needs for a child of this size. They should be drinking this much milk to get vitamin D, et cetera, et cetera. It's very prescriptive. And I think 
as I look even now, as we look at things like child obesity, it remains very prescriptive in the sense that they're looking at things like, this is how many calories, again, that you should be taking in. This is the food that you should be eating. This is the food that you should not be eating. And I think I would love to see a movement within education, within pediatrics, more towards the practice of feeding in the real life. Because I don't know about you, but having had my first baby in residency, I think that was one of the most educational experiences in pediatrics that I could have had. Because I distinctly remember before my child was born, I was learning all of these things and I just could not understand how these parents could not do what they were supposed to do. And then as soon as that child was born, I could not understand how anyone could do the things that they were supposed to do. And so I think that that has been the thing that I have. And really a big part of what led me to do so much research into feeding was, especially as a general practice pediatrician, those were the questions that people would ask you. They wouldn't to tell them exactly how much their child should eat, they were like, well, how am I supposed to do this? Exactly. And so I think that that's a part, like as pediatricians, that I would love to see people more in training say, well, what is the pra- what are the best practices for feeding, even more so than the nutritional requirements that someone might have at a certain age or activity level? Those things, I think, are are very difficult to get right if you haven't got the the practice of actually how do you feed a child in a healthy way and in a way that will allow them to have a healthy relationship with food in the future. And hopefully things like you said, having a healthy relationship with their environment and the communities that they live in. And so I think that that's a good point is that sometimes you really have to go backwards and look at you know, as as advisors, as physicians, as pediatricians, sometimes I think our focus should be looking at things like what is our actionable items that parents can actually take or how can we make the community better? Exactly. And Mm -hmm. we're so data driven. Your story makes me think about when I first had my twins and I went into neonatology. So as you remember from your NICU rotation, it's a lot of math and calculating how many kilocalories per kilogram per day babies needs. And so when I had my twins, I would chart how long I breastfed each one on each side. And then even when I went back to doing my rotation, I would make my mother-in-law chart how many ounces she fed. And I took that to my continuity clinic preceptor and he said, Katie, please put the notebook away. Don't do that. <laughs> but it is, we're really data focused. And so I think part of the issue and how we can make this change for our families is to really make that connection for kids, both with food and then also with the environment. And so I think a great way to do that is to grow your own food. So even if you don't have space to have a full garden, you can do a really simple experiment that can grow food. So I just want to give a shout out to a friend on Instagram named Thoughtfully Sustainable. She does a Sunday science series that is on (laughs) sustainability. That is a lot of S's. Um, And one of her experiments was to take a romaine lettuce bunch and to cut the top off, use your lettuce, and then to put that in a bowl of water. 
And I had my kids do this over our time in quarantine. And you measure each day how far that, how much that grows. And then you can plot that. So if you want to bring your data back into your life, you <laughs> mm-hmm. can. But it just shows that you can grow food from waste. I mean, that would normally be waste to someone or compost. And we can get into that discussion later. But it shows that you can grow your own food and it connects kids to it. And so they watch these leaves grow every day. And then, you know, we could put them on a sandwich or make a salad or something like that. So if you have the space and can grow a garden, that's really incredible too. And then also to take it a step further, having your kids get involved in the preparation of meals. That is also going to show your kids where food is coming from and it will make them try things that they might not have tried. I have, my youngest is an eight year old non-veggie lover and it breaks my heart, but I often have him help cook and he loves to cook, so that's great. So I have him chopping vegetables. He now will have bell pepper and onions on his Philly cheesesteak when we make those for dinner. So it really does get kids inspired to try new things when they're involved in both the growing and the cooking of food. I totally agree. So we did some home renovation and I sadly lost my garden this last summer, but I'm hoping to get it back. But for years, I've had gardens with my kids and they love it. I mean, the experience is so fun for them and I think it's totally true. And growing something I mean not only does it taste better I mean you can't get fresher food than just out of your yard but I think that when the kids have pulled it from the garden washed it up gone through the whole process of chopping it up and putting it in I mean they the pride that they have for that meal is I mean you can't compare it to anything else and even being out there and trying something from the vine Mm -hmm. I had my kids try snap peas for the first time off of the vine when they were little and they're just it's just such a great experience for them picking raspberries from my parents raspberry bush and it's just really seeing that joy that you described it's just really it's really inspiring absolutely and I totally agree with what you're saying in terms of getting kids in the kitchen I think that there's that's probably one of the other kind of universal things that I would say, regardless of what your own values or situations are, the value of getting your kid in the kitchen. And like you said, it, it really opens them up to trying new foods and getting them excited about maybe eating something that they otherwise would have thought looked weird. Uh, but I think also just the life skills of being able to cook for yourself, feeling comfortable in the kitchen is gonna serve them so much better as an adult. And I think that sometimes we overlook just the, that's time well spent. Because especially as your kids get older, how much time do you have to just stand around and chat? And that does happen when you're just cooking with your kids in the kitchen. I think that that time with them is is probably more important than we realize. So just that one-on-one, or maybe there's a few of you, but just face-to-face talking completing an activity together. And we always think, you know, kids should be in sports. They need to learn teamwork. Well, cooking dinner with your family, that's teamwork too. And so I think that sometimes we overlook that and we we even push aside sort of this family meal time and family meal preparations because we have to scoot to so many extracurricular activities. And a lot of times I think, well, 
sometimes the most beneficial thing to your kid really is just right there making dinner. So I agree. Even if you have to package things up and go to your activities, you really are sharing that time together when you're preparing the meal. The only other time I can think that I have my kids in that situation is on a chairlift when we're going skiing (laughs) where you have a captive audience, maybe in the car as well. But I think that that really is such an important point that you're also modeling behavior. So you're showing them that you're eating all of these different healthy foods and they'll look to you for that guidance and those behaviors because they've seen you do it and they've seen you have a salad every day for your lunch that you're packing in your reusable containers when you're going to work and that sort of thing. So the time that you share together preparing and then the modeling behavior I think are really important during that preparation time. Absolutely. Another thing that I actually talked about with a previous guest, Casey, who was a professional organizer, and we talked a lot about having a loose meal plan for your week and how that can really keep you on track in terms of being able to cook at home and save your sanity because a lot of times the hardest thing about making dinner is just deciding what to have for dinner. And so we talked about sort of having a loose schedule and one of those things for a lot of people or that's very popular is sort of this meatless Monday. And I know that that's something that we had talked about in terms of reducing meat consumption and the way that that can affect the environment. And again, we talked about everything's about progress. I mean, I we live in Nebraska. There's no way I can imagine my family turning vegetarian, Uh, but we do have the benefit of local grass-fed beef and things of that nature. But I do think that that is, again, like as we talk about something, well, things get overwhelming, but maybe this is one small thing I can do and it will make a positive impact. Can you talk a little bit about, I think we all know, we've heard, oh, this is good for the environment, but how is it really good? I think it's so important. So meat-free Monday has become so popular. And to rewind over 20 years ago, I was vegan for a couple of years in college. And I lived in Eugene, Oregon, which is a really easy place, even in the 90s, to be vegan. But I really didn't feel well. I was eating so Mm -hmm. much soy. And I just really, I didn't feel healthy. And so my dad is a hunter. And I started eating venison as sort of my gateway meat. And I felt a lot (laughs) better. And so since that time, I really have been eating meat on a regular basis. But more recently, since I've been more conscious and trying to make more choices, I have tried to shift to a more plant-based diet. So Meat-Free Mondays is a great way to just, again, do your part, do a small amount, and meet yourself where you are. So if you're eating meat three meals a day every day, maybe just make your lunch a meat-free Monday and have a salad that day with some beans. But if you are someone who eats meat at most weeknight meals, that's really where our family was, we just wanted to make that shift because it really is overall better for your health to reduce your red meat consumption for heart disease issues. It really is a cost saving. So that's actually how it was developed. It was during World War One where there were food rations and so they actually had it on a Tuesday, which wasn't quite as catchy. Oh, but that what was, a missed opportunity. <laughs> that was really how it started. And then in 2003 was resurfaced with the meat-free Monday, more catchy uh. title, but it was really for both health reasons in, in that 2003 resurgence. And then more recently, it's for the environmental issues. So 
really the um, consumption of beef is is not all bad. I live in Colorado where there are so many ranchers, multi-generational ranchers who are doing an amazing job as stewards of the land. And so we certainly do eat red meat, but just again, reducing it, making it something that's in your thought process is really important. So an idea to do is roasting some eggplant and mm-hmm. putting it in a food processor with some egg and breadcrumbs and then baking meatballs, making them into ball shapes and making meat, meatballs with red sauce. It tastes really delicious. And you can have that with pasta. And my kids turned their noses up at first, but they they did eat them. We don't do that every Monday, but I think just trying to introduce these kind of things and doing it on a regular basis will just make it so much easier. So I think the meal planning is is really, again, it's overwhelming to people. But if you have your go-tos on certain days, if you like tofu or tempeh, tofu or tempeh Tuesdays or Thursdays, making it just a day of the week that you do something, I think just makes it on autopilot. You can just then that week go to the store and know or, or order online, like know everything you need for that weekly rotation. And it just makes you, it sets you up for success in such a better way. Absolutely. Yeah, I I agree. We didn't always we don't always do meat free Mondays, but I going back to kind of food values, when I've tried to do meat free Mondays, also my family or my husband's family immigrated from India. And so for me that was a great opportunity to also bring in the cultural values in terms of that's food that my husband and his family grew up with and so I wanted that to also be a regular part of the food that we ate in our family, just to, again, kind of just keep your cultural values through food alive. And so fortunately, that's another thing I think that people can look at too, is is a lot of Indian food is vegetarian. And so there was lots of great recipes that we could look at that kind of serve both of those purposes. And they were, nobody feels like they're missing out when it's a very flavorful, fun dish and I think that for a lot of people too it's another way to introduce your kids maybe maybe Indian food isn't in your cultural background but for a lot of people they want to expose them to food from all around the world and so that can be a fun way to incorporate sort of two values of yours if you had them into one and and make it kind of a fun weekly activity and again I think it it reduces that decision fatigue when you're just like On Mondays, I do this. On Tuesdays, I do this. Absolutely. And then even with takeout. So that's how we have our Indian food. Mm -hmm. I am not as versed as a cook (laughs) as you are. And I have had your Indian food dinner, which was amazing. Um, But also just, you know, trying different restaurants that do have more vegetarian options. And Mm -hmm. often when I go out to eat at a restaurant, I will order the vegetarian dish because typically chefs do such an amazing job with those dishes. And I I have a Brussels sprout Caesar salad that I absolutely love and it's huge and it's a big dinner and it's at an Irish pub. So you can really find amazing dishes on menus nowadays and I think that that is a really great time to make that choice too when you're going out to dinner Mm -hmm. and you know you may your default may always to be to order the steak but on that Friday night, maybe just do a vegetarian dinner that night. And I think that that can be a change that you make as well, just to try that once a month even. Absolutely. And I wanted to go back to, you had talked about how in college you were vegan for a while. And in high school for a short time, 
maybe a couple years, a year or two, I was vegetarian, but my diet was terrible when I was a teenage vegetarian. It was like milkshakes and onion rings and whatever else my friends could give me for free through the drive through windows of the various <laughs> fast food places that they worked at. And you had kind of talked about, too, not feeling the best when you were a vegan. And I think that that was a question, too, sometimes that as a pediatrician you'd get from some people that really wanted to put their children on a strict vegan or plant-based diet. And I think that it's something that can be done, but I think it's also important, at least in my mind to mention, it's difficult to do for children in particular, I think, in a way that is nutritionally complete. It is really difficult to do. So I think you really just have to be conscious of making choices that your kids are going to sustain. So and as they get to be school aged, they go to birthday parties and they're mm -hmm. exposed to kids eating other things. And so I think it's really hard even emotionally for them too when they're, they feel like they're missing out. Um, but in doing your research, you absolutely can do a plant-based diet. You just have to be really dedicated to making sure you are having kids who are eating a variety of things. Um, and starting early is really the best because mm -hmm. they get used to eating all of those different flavors and spices and all the different types of vegetables. And then I think sustaining it into the, the elementary years is really hard. I just remember my kids ate so many different foods. And then I feel like once they got the carbs, once they could hold that cracker, it kind of went downhill. Yeah, That was really when they were like, oh, I'd rather have this. And so just continuing to expose them to vegetables helped. But I really think that as kids get older and then you let them make their own choices, you just do really have to watch that they're making healthy choices if they're having a limiting diet. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just something to go into cautiously because I do think it, it's difficult to sustain in a healthful way for everyone. It is. It's a lot of work. And if the whole family's doing it, I think it does make it easier. Mm -hmm. But sometimes there are family members who don't want to have those rigid requirements or something like that. And it's one parent doing it. Or I think that it is just a challenge, but it Absolutely. can be done. Okay. So I have another question for you. You had touched on earlier was about composting. So I feel like composting is one of those things that has been in my mind always as something I wanted to do, but I find it very intimidating. So, because my kids were always like, oh, we compost at school. And I would be like, yeah, yeah. And then the idea of having like a container of decomposing food under my cupboard sounded gross. And having wor worms in a bucket outside sounded gross. <laughs> I'm not as outdoorsy as Katie. So so for the city girls or the girls that maybe weren't as, uh, you know, comfortable with critters and things like that, what what is sort of the training wheels of composting? So I love composting so much and I am a self-proclaimed composting failure. I have tried to compost on my own and it just didn't work for a lot of the reasons you just said. Maybe not my fear of worms because I'm I'm okay with those, but I I just really couldn't get the ratios of the greens and the browns and it's it's a science and it's really yeah. fascinating. Mm. 
what I think has revolutionized composting are the services that are out there. So a lot of communities have compost pickup or drop-off services where you can pay a fee and have a bin and then either take it to a weekly drop-off or they pick it up right from your house. And that changed my composting game big time. So another tip with the bin is to line it with a paper bag. So I, I'm sure most people do by now also like the reusable water bottle, bring their reusable bags to the grocery store. But on occasion, you probably have a paper bag from takeout or from the time you forgot your bags. So you can just put that in your composting bin and it makes it less messy and tends to kind of absorb some of that smell. But I do just keep it under my kitchen sink in that bin, and it does just work well. And the kids are all really trained with their banana peels, and sometimes they just put it on top of the bin, and I'm like, guys, it does open. (laughs) But pretty much everyone is trained to put their compost in there, and it is incredible how much less trash we make. And it's really fun to then in the spring go pick up the compost that was made by these organizations. Most of them do that as well. They have like a compost pickup day where you can go pick up compost. Back to Earth Compost is where I got started in the Philly suburbs. Shout out to Colleen um, who runs that service. But she would come every two weeks to our house and pick it up and then in the spring would have an event where she would have big piles of compost and then you could come and put that in your garden. So just showing kids also full circle how your food scraps can make soil that can then grow your food is really powerful and pretty amazing. Absolutely. So just looking online, you think for most people in their community, what would we Google? I would just Google composting service to start. I did that for my in-laws. It turns out Minneapolis has a citywide program and a lot of communities have programs that you just might not even know about yet. I like it. I like it. We'll Google that and see if there's something around here. I even had a friend reach out to me and say she was going on vacation to Florida and did I know of any places? And so I did a Google search and found a place and she reached out and the woman said, sure, you can drop off your stuff here for the month and gave her a discounted rate. I have been known on camping trips to have my big Tupperware bin and bring our compost back home. And so you can just be really creative with it and continue to do it even when you're traveling. And how long do you think you can keep that stuff in a Tupperware? Like how long of a trip would you be comfortable carrying? I think again, I just needed to get over the grossness factor. Like I'm just very like, get rid of it, make you it have, go. You have touched a lot of gross things in your that's life true, as a mom. That's true. I think that you can dig deep and just have that rotting apple core in there and you'll be okay. So suck it up. That's Uh, your tip. A little bit. I would say a week, a week or two, because our composting service would come every other week. So they, our stuff would, would sit in there for two weeks and. Okay. And doesn't get like flies or. No, the lid is screws on and it's secure. It's secure. Okay. You can do this. I believe in this. I believe it. I can do it. Okay. So. Is there one, you, we talked about the water bottles, we talked about Meatless Mondays. Is there one other thing that you do with your family in terms of feeding them, or one other tip that you would have for parents in terms of feeding your family that could help them be more eco-friendly and help them provide a healthier environment or just healthier food? 
for their kids? I would say eating food in its purest form would be my tip. So snacking. Snacking is really a challenge in our house. My kids have discovered Takis. Do you know Takis? I have not had them, but I know what they are. So they're really, they're a spicy corn-based snack that is probably like one of the most processed and dye-ridden foods you could have. So I'm putting myself out there. I am not perfect. My kids eat Takis. We're all about... Nobody's perfect. It's all progress. My kids eat all kinds of gross stuff. (laughs) So when I'm trying to break them from their talkie addiction, I do have them eat fruits and carrot sticks is kind of our go-to vegetable, but especially before bed. Like our my kids are always want that snack before it's time to go up to bed. So we do apple slices or bananas or right now stone fruits are in season. And so apricots and plums and peaches. And so just trying to encourage snacking on real foods, I think is probably the other big takeaway. And to also set yourself up for success, buying all that stuff once a week when you're doing your grocery run and making sure you're stocked up for the week and eating the things that are going to go bad first Mm -hmm. and then saving those peaches that were a little hard for later in the week and then the apples are gonna keep and so maybe doing those so that you're not always running to the market. But then the also the other I think key piece is for vegetables to prep them. So I try once a week to peel a bunch of carrots and to cut them all up and cucumbers and red bell peppers and radishes. I think just having that all ready to go, that's how I make my salads for lunch. We do we do Taco Tuesday with a meat meatless usually. Monday Taco Tuesday. Taco I'm Tuesday. with you. I yep. have all the I have all the days of the week named. <laughs> yep. And so having those as toppings is also part of our routine too. So I just get out those little containers, we line them up, and it does, it encourages kids to try more things if they're mm-hmm. all out there, colorful in front of you. So I would say just eating foods in their purest, most whole form is mm-hmm. my other biggest takeaway too. You're reducing packaging and processing and you are making healthy choices. So it's, I think, a win in all different ways. And then again, going back to bulk, so I buy my carrots in the biggest bag possible or even in bulk if that's available at whatever market I'm going to. And I'm not buying those little bags of shredded carrots or carrot baby carrots or carrot chips or any form of carrot in the bag. Have I been known to buy those? Of course. But I think just trying to make it in your routine to set aside some time for prep. And I find chopping vegetables kind of meditative. So it's like almost that self-care instead of like viewing it as, oh my gosh, I'm so overwhelmed. I have to cut all these vegetables. I put on some music and dance around and cut up my veggies and it's kind of a fun time and it's satisfying to see all those containers in there that look all healthy and beautiful. I totally agree. Well, and I think it goes back to, too, that's a very easy thing to get kids involved with. So kids can cut and pick things and, and chop things up and put them in containers. And I would have to agree with you. I think this is something that almost everyone we've had on has talked about is that preparing and planning piece. And I think that that's the key to success for almost anything you're trying to do, whatever your value is, whether it's eating healthier, or being more environmentally friendly or anything, it's really comes down to that preparing and planning piece. And I totally agree prepping all of our fruits and veggies. I mean, it's, it's, I've said this before, but it's really the difference between them becoming a pile of moldy mush at the bottom of the fridge and actually getting used for 
these beautiful, healthy meals. And so I think that that is a complete game changer. Absolutely. So I totally agree. And it makes it easier because the easy way out is certainly to reach for the package process thing that's like right Mm -hmm. on the shelf, either if it's in your house for your backup or if it's in the store. And so if you already have done the hard work earlier in the week, then you're going to be able to make that easy choice that's a healthy choice. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Katie. I think it's about time that we move on to our next portion of the podcast, which is Ask Me Anything. And the part I didn't tell you is it's also Ask You Anything. (laughs) So we'll see what questions we have today and if you have any good answers for us. I love it. I'm excited. (laughs) All right. And now it's time for your questions. Ask Me Anything with Dr. Kristen on the Feeding the Family podcast. Our first question today, is there any research about the impact of children, especially, ingesting microscopic bits of plastic uh, as we as we drink from plastic bottles and use plastic cups and bowls, we ingest microscopic plastic. Is there any research on the impact or risk to uh, children's health as a result? I think the answer to that one is an I don't know. I think the unknown is really the big issue. It's Mm -hmm. kind of similar to COVID. We don't know what long-term effects are going to be problems for kids as they get older with exposure to these plastics. And so BPA was in the news years ago, and so it was taken out of all different plastics. There are probably compounds in there now that we don't even know the names Mm -hmm. of that are not healthy for us and we just don't know and so i think both the production of plastics and then the use of them is probably not ideal i think the single use plastics are the bigger issue though because they're made in a different way where they're just not as as durable and sturdy but we just simply really don't know i certainly still use plastic in my life and with my kids i just try to reuse i don't microwave in plastic so i think just trying to make the best choices we can but we just there's so much unknown out there about the risks I agree I think that that is an unknown and I know I want to say it was like 2018 the AAP the American Academy of Pediatrics did put out recommendation to try to use glass and stainless steel for dishes for feeding your kids I mean again did my kids we've we've had every plastic cup on earth I feel like over time um But I would say now, especially when they're a little older and not throwing things across the room, I have certainly moved to stainless steel water bottles and we just drink from glass. And same as you, I will oftentimes, I still have plastic containers that I'll store food in. Um, But again, with microwaving, I'll try to move them either to like a ceramic bowl or a glass bowl to microwave things in, really just to try to minimize whatever chemicals from that plastic might be leaching into the food. I I think that that's one of those things where, again, we don't know, but it's simple enough of a change that people can make um, that I think it's, it's worth doing, especially with kids where they have their whole life to live. And so you don't know what those things and those things have changed over time, too, in ways that I'm not even familiar with. But I would assume that the plastics of now are not even the same as the plastics from when we were kids. So to me, those kind of unknowns that can have long term effects in your body, it's best to just minimize them when you can. And like you said, not beat yourself up, though, if 
you're using a plastic container for your kid's sandwich, but it's still better than the baggie, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Our next question is about all the other products that families and children use on a daily basis, such as shampoos and soaps that have chemicals in them that can also be harmful to our health. So I think, again, just trying to do your own research. There are so many sources out there that I think are just really hard to navigate and confusing, but again, just trying to find products that have fewer ingredients that you recognize the names of. I will say sunscreens. I think using a mineral-based sunscreen is probably the best. It's the most effective, but those are really important to continue to use a sunscreen that's going to be really good for your kids. And I know that that has a lot of kind of controversy around Mm -hmm. it as well. Um, I also think that in using soaps and shampoos and that sort of thing, packaging is another issue for those. So there are bar shampoos. There are bar shampoos for color treated hair that I have found. (laughs) And so I try to use those as well. And you can use those for there are ones out there for kids as well. So I think less packaging companies that have a ethical mission statement to them, just trying to support local businesses, that sort of thing. It goes along with any products you're using in addition to food. I agree. I think kind of like you touched on with food, it's just sort of the closest to nature that we can come is probably better. So that is a lot more difficult with some of the hygiene products and even cleaning products I think that we use but and I think the nice thing is is that now maybe compared to even 10 years ago I think that there's a lot more natural products available at reasonable costs and then volumes that are reasonable for use at least for me with four kids and a family like buying little tiny you know it used to be if you wanted to get something organic it came in this cute little tiny bottle. And so now things are, I think, becoming a little bit more consumer friendly in the sense of price and also just being able to buy it in a larger volume, which has been Exactly. And if you have a natural food store that does stuff in bulk, again, I keep coming back to bulk, but I've had stores where you could buy olive oil in bulk. A lot of that stuff has changed since COVID where Mm -hmm. For hygiene purposes, they have taken that away. But as much as possible and as much as it's still out there, if you can buy in bulk, I think that that is helpful too and use your own containers and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Our last question today, what is the most common thing that parents are doing that is actually putting their children's health at risk without them even knowing it? I can answer what I think... I might, it might be going out on a ledge to say that this is for sure the most destructive thing. But I would say in general, particularly with feeding, but probably in a lot of other realms of life, but with feeding, sometimes I think the most destructive thing is the behavior in terms of your relationship with food or your own diet that you're modeling for your kids. So I think for a lot of parents, they have taken on for whatever reason, there's a certain meal, there's a certain meal time, there's a certain way we feed the children, and then there's a certain thing I eat, a certain way I eat, and maybe even a separate time that you eat. And so I think that sometimes we overlook the importance of the behaviors that we're modeling, and I think that if you have kids, you know that they see and notice everything. They'll say things later to you, and you're like, 
I didn't realize you knew what was going on. They do. They're smart and they know what's going on. And even if they don't think that that's how, if you're modeling poor behaviors in terms of, um, you know, I think there's a lot of risk if you're heavily into diet culture and you're modeling that behavior for your kids, skipping meals and, and doing that kind of thing. Or even if you're, you know, if you're like, you guys need to eat this healthy meals because I love you, I'm going to just get the drive through because I don't know, I guess we often care for ourselves less than we do for our kids. But I think they see that and that's how they imagine that they should eat as adults or that that's how, what they anticipate for their future. So I think it applies to a lot of realms of life to just be conscious, but particularly in feeding, I think the idea of the shared meal, I, I have often, when I was a younger mom, and again, like not always maybe taking, prioritizing yourself and putting things first, I actually had to tell myself to feed myself like a toddler. Cause I said, would I give this to my kid? I would not. And so in order to improve my health and just to take on that mentality, a lot of times I have to dumb it down. And I would just say, I would not feed this to my child. I also should not be eating it. And so I think sometimes just thinking that way, if it's not good enough, you don't think it's good enough for your kids, it's probably not good enough for you either. And you're actually helping them by modeling that behavior for them. So, and normalizing it, I think. I think that's a great one. I like that. I My answer will be a shift from that a little bit where I think polarizing things in a black and white way is a really big thing that parents do that they might not even realize. So I'll just take it back to the meatless Monday issue. And so there are people who are really adamant about a plant-based diet is the only way and you're just failing if you can't do that and don't do that. And then there are people on the other end who are in the beef industry who just think that it's absolutely ridiculous that people are making claims against beef. And so we need to all be somewhere in the middle and not be polarizing and just meet everybody where they are and just all do the best we can. But I think that making really strong claims on either side that this is the only way to be is not serving our kids in the future, particularly in this divisive world we're living in. And so we all are really want the same things, which is the health of our kids. And we just have to keep that in mind and meet people where they're coming from. So I think as pediatricians, we really learned to do that in our training when we have patients from all different places coming to us and we have to connect with them and so I think that just doing that in our personal lives too as parents I think is really important. I agree I think especially as you start to raise adolescents and teenagers in particular uh, where they really start to gain independence and sort of rebel against you I think sometimes those things will will work against you exactly and Really, it is better to grow up with a mind. You don't want to grow up with a mindset like these are bad and these are good and it's so black and white. Like you said, in terms of just even being comfortable, you know, I'm, I may not be a huge fan of me, but I'm comfortable around me and I'm comfortable around people eating me and right. things of that and vice versa. I think it it promotes acceptance, but it also promotes not growing up with a set of good and bad values necessarily to food because I also think that that kind of creates a moral dilemma for kids right um, and you certainly don't want eating to become this moral dilemma where they're like oh you know I'm bad because I ate sugar exactly well 
you know, you, you had good intentions, I think at the beginning, but now that's created a lot of like psychological issues for your child around eating. Exactly. All right. Well, I want to thank Katie again for joining us today. I had so much fun talking to you and you can follow Katie on her Instagram account at ecomamadoc and we'll include a link to that with all of our information. And again, don't forget to submit more questions. We want to hear from you. Submit your questions for Ask Me Anything to Dr. Kristen Podcast, D-R-K-R-I-S-T-I-N Podcast at gmail.com. And we look forward to seeing you next time.